Welcome to the second Into the Wilderness podcast. You're joined here today with myself, Daryl Pace, and my brother, Byron. I'll be looking after your sound today, so I hope you enjoy. We're joined today with a bushcraft instructor and the headkeeper from Milden Estate. I will be taking care of all the questions, and today we have quite a variety of topics to discuss. Everything from should we use the word sport in hunting to what makes a modern day hunter. We will also um, be covering the big thank you note from Chris Packham and uh, the request for him to resign from the BBC, as well as the um, current appointment of the Shadow Minister for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. That's not quite all though. We will also touch on the idea of killing the last panda bear as well as the eradication of red squirrels in the British Isles. We do hope you enjoy. This podcast is once again brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Welcome everyone to our second Into the Wilderness podcast. Tonight we've got two more guests, one on Skype, uh, we've got Jake Swindells, who is a gamekeeper come bushcraft instructor. And in the studio, uh, we've got Jason Clamp, who is the headkeeper of Milden Estate. So we're going to go through the, the usual format, find out a little bit about our guests, and then um, tackle a couple of topics which uh, may be a little bit controversial and certainly topical for the last couple of weeks. So, Jason, you're, you're in the studio with us. Let's start with you. Just tell me a, a little bit about your life and how you've got to where you are today. Did you always want to become a gamekeeper, you know, from school years, or how not, did you get into this? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I mean, I grew up on a traditional estate, um, you know, a small village. Um, but the thing I wanted to do was join the forces, which I did when I left school. So not gamekeeping at all, no. And uh, what forces did you go into? I joined um, the Light Infantry um, which was that a long time ago? Um, I joined in 1988, um, and I did five years. Um, so, um, like I say, from a traditional village, uh, my father was a butcher, uh, farmer. Um, you know, so it's something that I hadn't thought about, even though I'd been involved in it. You know, most of my life growing up. And what? was it that made you leave the military and, and make the move? Did you go straight from that into gamekeeping? Or? No, I didn't. Um, I actually left the forces and went to work for my father again. Um, I did another couple of years working for him as a butcher and um, I couldn't stand being inside in a market for six days a week. Hated it. So um, I went to college. I actually went to Bishop Burton College and did a countryside management um, qualification there. What kind of uh, stuff did that entail and how long were you there for? Yeah, uh, that was a three-year college course um, and the countryside management was a quite a, a wide varying uh, qualification, covered everything from um, ecology to dry stone walling to, you know, everything really. Um, and like I said, I did that and then I got a job on the estate where I grew up working for the Fitzwilliam Estates um, in forestry actually. Um, started out in forestry there, and it went from there. So, so from leaving college and, and getting that job, were you pretty much set that that was the direction you wanted to take? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, countryside, you know, or you know, forestry or gamekeeping, or that's you know, that's what I realised that I liked and I wanted to do. And from from that point onwards, just talk me through your your career and the estates you've been on and the kind of roles that you've had. Because obviously, you're headkeeper now, so you're kind of at the top of your game, really. Yeah, I mean, um, 
much to my surprise, but um, and a lot of hard work in between. Um, like I say, I um, finishing finishing college, I got a job with the estate that I grew up on, um, which was the Fitzwilliam Estates in South Yorkshire. Um, on the forestry side of things, and got into gamekeeping through that. Um, you know, um, working with pheasant and partridge on local shoots, um, and then progressed from there. I moved up onto the estate, um, grouse moor, and got a job there. Um, from there, uh, where did I go to from there? Um, I came to Scotland, um, got a job at, on Glenogle Estate, worked there, uh, moved back down to Yorkshire again on another grouse moor. Um, and then got a job, um, this job that I'm in now as head keeper of Milden Estates. So you've obviously had quite a variety of roles as you've gone through it. You're on grouse now, uh, Milden is primarily a, a grouse estate. Is that, is, did you realise early on that grouse would you, be your passion? I mean, how come you didn't go along the, the stalking route or is it just as you landed, just the jobs that you ended up with? Yeah, no, I mean... Um, being a Yorkshireman and growing up where I grew up, I mean, you're surrounded by grouse and grouse moors, um, you know, so I suppose it's in you anyway because it, it's it's a normal thing to do, you know. So, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to go down the grouse route. And the, the the job that you've got right now, when you went to Milden, were you head keeper straight away or how, how did that uh, come about? Yes, I went to Milden as head keeper on the north side, yeah. And during the time that you've been there, what, what, have, you, what have you changed? Has it Did you sort of fit into a... A regime and a way of doing things that was how you wanted to do it anyway or did you find yourself really ha- sort of having to make your own stamp yeah no i think i think you do initially when you when you take a job on like that you you've got to fit into the things fit into fit into it as things were done but you do have an idea yourself how you want things to work so you know you, it's a slow process and you start making little changes you know and making it work for how you you want it to work and like I say I was still what am I now my third season still making little changes and making you know doing things the way I want to do them the way that I think they work and uh, just give me a rundown of this year in terms of grouse not not just for you um, but say Scotland as a whole I mean it's been quite patchy I mean some people have seemed to have had some excellent year so far um, and others, it's been a lot, lot tougher. Yeah, it's been a varied year. Um, I mean, not just in Scotland. I mean, countrywide. Um, l- last year, I think everyone was spoilt. I mean, perfect breeding season. You know, perfect spring, summer, and everyone had grouse. But this year has been a totally different uh, kettle of fish. Um, the weather, in particular, I think that's affected affected a lot, a lot of grouse moors. Um, you know. A cold spell in the spring, just as chicks were hatching, you know, affected everyone. And you know, it's it's been a wet, not a, not a really cold winter. So I mean, I think um, a lot of people are carrying a lot of you know the worm burden and grouse, you know, were fairly heavy. And I think that's what's affected a lot of the moors. Just uh, for those people who don't um, quite understand, obviously most people realise that the grouse is a wild bird. You mentioned worm burden. Just just explain why that's a problem. Yeah, um, with the grouse, what happens, um, it's actually the strong isle worm. It's a worm that lives um, primarily in the bird's gut, um, and they get large infestations of strong isle worm. It damages the gut, um, you know, and obviously it's detrimental to the health of the bird. You know, they don't produce as many young, um, and eventually it can kill them. Um, you know, so we have to we have to treat the birds for that. In terms of um, grouse on on Milden in particular, 
how do you see it evolving? What, taking a look back at how grass was sort of 40, 50 years ago, and if you can try and think forward 40, 50 years, what do you think's going to change? Um, I think definitely the management of the place. I mean, 40, 50 years ago, um, management methods were far, far removed from, you know, how we how we manage the grouse today. I mean, the main, the main difference is obviously the legislation and the laws. Um, all that's changed from 40, 50 years ago, and we, we have to abide by those laws and legislation. So it makes the job, it's... It's much harder to produce grouse, you know, um, dealing with legislation and the laws. Um, so 40, 50 years time, oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, hopefully we'll still be producing grouse, you know, to shoot. Um, but who knows? Who knows? What do you see as the the biggest threat to prevent you managing um, a grouse more the way you want to manage it. We'll, we'll get on a little bit later when we start talking about the um, the campaign through the Angus Merlin Group about exactly the, the benefits of what you guys do. But what, right now, what do you see as the, the biggest threat to prevent you managing a healthy moor the way that you manage it right now? Yeah, I mean, um, there are threats in a lot of ways. Um, I mean... Obviously, the the main one, the hot topic at the minute, are um, the land reform. Um, you know that the Scottish government proposing. Um, I mean, that's a that's a big threat to a lot of moors. Um, I mean that that uh, that in itself. I think if it does happen, um, then you'll see big big changes the way the land is used, and that that's the main thing: the way the land is used, and you're allowed to use the land. Mm-hmm. And what about in terms of um, in terms of trapping? I mean, snaring not that long back was quite a hot topic, but you guys use it as a as a daily tool almost. Yeah, we do. Um, I mean, the snaring side of it. I mean, uh, now it's it <coughs> excuse me, snaring is um, dealt with in a totally different way as it uh, to it was sort of five years ago. I mean, um, the legislation in that has changed, um, where everyone has to be qualified and have their own number. Um, that are fastened to snares, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's good um, because it makes it makes the use of snares a lot more professional, and people are accountable for it. So, I mean, I don't see that a problem. Um, the snares are working exactly the same. The only difference is that people are accountable for them, which I think, like I say, is a good thing. No, 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 I absolutely agree. We've 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 gone over a little bit more away from the. Uh, your sort of life story to where you've got. So we'll just swing over to, to Jake now. Jake, sort of same question to you. I mean, I met you a couple of years ago now, and at that point you were actually a, um, a clay instructor. Um, but just go back in time a little bit and, and tell me about how, how you ended up there, where, where I met you, and <clears throat> what it is in your life that's kind of led you down this path of everything in the world that you could choose to do. Uh, yeah, well, I suppose it's um, I've had a quite a diverse path uh, uh, on the road to uh, meeting your good self, really. Um, originally brought up, uh, well, born in Dumfries, brought up on the southwest coast of uh, Scotland, just near Port Patrick. Um, very, very rural community. Um, so, you know, big farm community, um, some really nice estates around there with Logan Estate and Stair Estate as well, which I've been quite heavily involved in. Um, Mainly through school, I had a friend um, who I'm still really good friends with now, whose dad is the keeper of 
uh, Stereostate. And that was really what got me interested, first of all. Um, you know, we'd be on the bus to his house on the weekends. I'd spend the weekend helping him and his dad sort of with a shoot and feeding and, you know, repairing pens and all kinds. And that kind of sparked an interest um, sort of within me. Um, yeah, in the village itself, it's a really, really small village, Port Logan, um, right on the West Coast. Hardly any people in the village at all. And certainly nobody my age at the time, school age. Um, and I just spent the time fishing, you know, just uh, going around the rocks, finding little bays to fish in and, um, you know, make little toy weapons and spears and rock pooling and, you know, doing all the things that kids should be out doing, really. And should and, still be doing to this day. Well, yeah. Well, to be fair, that's pretty much exactly what I am doing now. <laughs> anyway, so um, either regressed or not growing up, one of the two. Um, but, yeah, I mean, every every person should have the opportunity to do something like that and experience something like that because, it, you know, it did me a world of good, uh, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Um, just being able to walk out your front door, you know, take your fishing rod, and uh, yeah, I carried a Bowie knife around with me, you know, and I've still got it to this day as well, um, you know, for fishing and sharpening sticks when I needed to and, you know, all the usual boy things. Um, but, yeah, really, you know, that's when I was starting fires on my own, I was cooking fish on my own, you know, when I was um, young high school age. Um, so that kind of, you know, I was already interested in the gamekeeping, that sort of, Got me interested in the bushcraft side of things as well. Um, yeah, so that's really where it started from. And from so from from that point, that's you've taken us sort of up to I guess the end of high school. What did you do immediately on leaving high school? Um, well, I, I actually my, my family are from um, south of the border, so we ended up moving back down south when I was fifteen, um, and and. I went to college for a little while and my dad was, you know, very staunch and, you know, son, you must get a trade, get a trade. Um, so I went into um, accident, vehicle accident repair, I actually worked um, in a garage repairing um, crashed cars, which I did enjoy, but I knew I wasn't in the right place, you know. Um, so I got qualified at repairing cars um, and then there was, a, there was an itch, the whole time there was an itch. Um, and when I was old enough, I actually progressed into quite a serious career um, which I was in for quite some time you know best part of a decade anyway um, and right the way through that career you know it was in you know a busy city and it, it wasn't where my heart was at all I was you know I'm a country boy really so I, the whole time I just wanted to be back and we came to Crossroads um, a little while ago probably maybe six years ago now um, I had the opportunity to come back home north of the border um, and I took it. And uh, from from there, you went into gamekeeping, or how long was that before I, I met you? Yeah, that, well, that was probably uh, four years before we met. Um, so I had a year out. I actually, um, I, I quite enjoyed my fishing, my sea fishing then, um, and I, I supplied some fish to aquariums around Britain and Europe as well, live fish. Um, uh, I was the only one, uh, the only uh, UK-based um, uh, person supplying rod caught fish to aquariums. Um, so you know that was very, very sporadic work. You know, everybody wanted to fish when it came to Easter time for the summer holidays, and then you know winter would be very sparse, and no orders would be coming in. So um, yeah, that was uh, that, that was short-lived, but very, very enjoyable. You know, 
working and uh, fishing, you know, being one of the same. I really did enjoy it, but it was from then on I thought, well, right, well, I've left a very, very serious career, so um, I don't want to waste it. What I want to do, the next job I go into is, is the job I really want to enjoy. I don't want to go into another nine-to-five grind. And so I thought back to what I did enjoy, and I came straight back around to gamekeeping again. And so I applied for a course at Borders College um, and ended up moving over to the Borders um, so I lived in St. Boswell's right near the college and, and it all came out of it with an HNC in gamekeeping. And at the, at the same time you were instructing clay shooting? No, 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 no. That's, that's, that uh, <laughs> not quite there, not quite there. Um, when, during the course, it was a full-time course um, and partway through the second year I got a job on a family shoot, uh, running the family shoot. Um, it was a small shoot, you know, but a good, uh, a good step up. Um, and around that time, um, I was really putting the hours in, so I got the job at the clay shooting ground where we met, um, and progressed on to do some instruction. Um, I was still keeping um, as well at the family shoot, um, so they were very, very long days, as you can imagine. Um, and then, yeah, I worked at a couple of family shoots in the borders. Um, that's uh, that's the time when we met, obviously, and then. Uh, yeah, it's it's really really enjoyable time. I must admit, it's you know, I, look, I, I look even though it was only you know a couple of years ago, I look back at it as, as some of the best times that I've had certainly. And you moved on a little bit since then, and you are now a bushcraft instructor. Would that be your correct title? Um, well, I suppose so. That's that's generally what I, I spend my day doing now. Um, my well, sadly, my um, my last uh, boss that I worked for on the family shoot became very ill, and he didn't know whether he would be having a shoot the next year. So I had a choice: I could either wait around to see if I had a job, um, or uh, I could take an opportunity that came up um, back home or very, very close to where I, where, where I was brought up um, and where my family still are, um, which was on the bushcraft side of things. Now that was a passion of mine, so. Um, Luckily, uh, I live on a small estate with a chute, so I still have a hand um, in the chute here. Um, you know, I live sort of 10 miles away from uh, my bushcraft side of, of work, um, so that's a nice little commute down the west coast in every day. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, even my holidays now tend to involve a little bit of bushcraft. Um, a really good holiday of mine about four years ago, actually. Uh, we, uh, myself and three friends came from Sweden to Norway and as much as we could we lived off the land you know so we're, we're trying to trap animals and uh, we're, we're doing a lot of fishing every day we're foraging for food which is um, again you know a big, a big part of what I do now and it's, it's really interesting to me to hear from you the public interaction that you have because obviously you you come from a background where you you know you were a keeper and you you obviously shoot i've done some shooting with you but the kind of people who want to come and learn bushcraft skills might be a little bit removed from that um you know they see ray mears and they see uh bear grills although i don't know if he really counts um, and you know, they, it's what's incentivized a lot of people to go and kind of take this up, or at least try and find out a little bit about it. And I guess that's where you come in because that's a service that you offer, and people can come and they can learn how to light a fire. But how does that how does that interaction go? And do you go as far as um, 
you know, actually killing something, whether that be a rabbit or a fish or... And, and what is people's reaction to that who maybe haven't seen it before? Um, well, first of all, yeah, you're absolutely right. With Along with um, Ray Mears uh, side of things, he's certainly someone that I've um, I've read a lot about. I've certainly watched quite a lot of programs of his and have an interest in him um, since a very young age. Um, now, people see uh, Bear Grylls has done something um, lately, you know, bringing sort of a little bit more adventure to it, really. Um, so that's kind of piqued everybody's interest. Um, or it started to be interest. So they see Ray Mears and say Bear, uh, they see Bear on TV. Um, and, you know, effectively they're sat in the sofa thinking that is cool. Um, but what I like is that I can offer, um, you know, a service whereby people come to me and, you know, they can, they can get off the couch, they can come down to me and um, I can show them, uh, give them a demonstration how to light a friction fire with bow and drill methods and flint and steel methods. Um, and they have a go and they, you know, um, it's quite a diverse uh, array of people that come down as well. So we'll get anything from the young groups, from scouts to uh, families. Um, you know, dads, dads and lads are a really big thing. You know, they've seen all this thing on TV and they'll come down, they'll book onto the courses uh, and they'll really, really enjoy it. So we'll, we'll survival shelter build, we'll um, track animals, we'll wild food forage, you know, we'll make friction fires. Um, and it's something that they can really, really get hold of, you know, that would usually be out with the reach, really. A lot of, a lot, a lot of the, uh, uh, my audience come from um, cities, and, you know, the closest they ever get is really watching it on TV. Mm. I mean, Jason, just a, a question for you, bringing you in on, on, in on this. That seems to be quite acceptable to people, you know, they'll watch Ray Mears and he'll trap a rabbit or something and you know kill it and and cook it and eat it but the idea or the general perception from the public for people who hunt as hunt as opposed to you know the bushcraft side of it it's not quite as palatable why do you think that is i mean there's a a definite crossover but equally there's a definite line that people seem to draw yeah there is definitely um uh, it's a difficult one to explain um i think you know, one of the one of the main reasons why people sort of shy away from the shooting side of things is, um, I know we were speaking earlier about it, is the use of the word sport. Um, I mean, I don't know whether it should be called a sport or not, or it should just be called hunting, which it is. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, and a lot of people, as soon as they hear sport, and then, you know, they automatically think people are doing it just for fun. You know, and it's it's how they get their kicks, but it it's not like that at all. And we all know it's not like that. It's uh, it's more of a way of life, you know, and it's it's a sustainable way to harvest the land, you know, and and that that's the message we've got to get across to people. Yeah, well, that brings me very nicely onto one of my questions. You're right. We, prior to recording this podcast, we were talking about the kind of questions and stuff we were gonna kind of go over and one of them jake was the use of the word sport now it's pretty much ingrained in it's ingrained in uh in, in everything we do in terms of hunting now it's it's a generally accepted word that we you know people are going to go and enjoy some good sport you know that's a it's a, a common phrase that's used and the um you know we use it ourselves as, as shooters a lot of shooters use that and uh, in terms of the the public and the way stuff is written in the media, it's often portrayed that way. But it is it is an interesting question as to whether the word sport should really be used 
in the context in the context of what we we do as, as hunters if you like um you know i i do primarily myself I, I really enjoy stalking that's kind of where i'm at that's if i could only do one type of hunting it would be stalking of some description as opposed to birds um but i don't do that for sport if you like it's it's much more than that it's much more back to the sort of grassroots of why we hunt um i do take a huge amount of enjoyment out of the management and the actual hunt i don't take any enjoyment out of the death of an animal and that's why i think maybe calling it a sport probably doesn't sit quite right with me although i although i perfectly accept it's a very common word and i you know i, I throw it in as well because it's generally accepted and i don't think people using the word mean it sport as in a sort of yeehaw you know fun type of way which sport can mean I mean, what's your kind of take on that jake i completely agree with you um it's it's funny you should say that actually because i had a conversation with my brother uh, towards the end of last year and it, it was about a different topic it was about rock climbing whether rock climbing was a sport so we actually looked at what sport meant in the dictionary um and it's um an activity involving physical exertion and that's either a person against person or team against team um, with some sort of skill involved. Now, if you look at likes of hunting like you or I do, then that doesn't necessarily fit um, mm. what a sport would be. Um, I think sports generally, commonly and widely used now to describe, um, you know, what what we do as a whole. Um, yeah, country, I, I country sports. Yeah. Yeah, country sports. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, yes, it is only just a saying. It's you know, it's a term that people use to saying, but I think it gives off the wrong impression. Um, country pursuit, or um, you know, just hunting, mm. hunting. You know, it, it is hunting. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, I think uh, the one thing about call, <coughs> calling it hunting, if you say hunting in the UK, most people's mind jumps to fox hunting. If you say hunting, it's fox hunting. Mm. If you say well, in, in, in any other, uh, sorry, carry on, Jack. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, again, um, fox hunting. Yeah, you say fox hunting now. Uh, again, that's a separate issue that I don't really want to. Um, we'll leave that for another day, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but fox hunting. Um, if you look at the likes of target shooting, uh, rifle shooting, it's in the Olympics. Clay shooting. Again, you know, with GB have got fantastic teams in both um, disciplines. Um, that's sport, and that's involving firearms. That's involving shotguns. Um, what we do, or certainly what I do, um, I know it's very similar to yourself, I don't class as a sport. No, no, and, and just going back to the, I mean, the, the, the well, this again brings me into uh, very nicely into the next part was I wanted to kind of explore what a modern day hunter was. Now, like we've just said, hunting in terms of the context in the UK has a very different meaning because most people associate that with fox hunting. If you say you're a hunter, especially, you know, if in certain circles that must mean you ride on top of a horse and you chase foxes around any other part of the world if you say you're a hunter it means what we really mean by that which is you know we go out in the pursuit of game for a purpose of hunting it to bring it back to your table to put it in your freezer to feed yourself to feed your family to feed somebody eventually it doesn't matter what it is that we're, we're shooting or culling it all goes back into the food chain and that's a very important point to try and get across to people is that nothing is wasted in any of the activities we do. I mean, 
a modern day hunter, Jason? I mean, it's quite a difficult one to contextualize, really, because a lot of people who shoot are not necessarily doing it for you know every part of their their daily life, or necessarily doing it because they need to feed themselves through hunting. No, that <clears throat> no, they don't. Not at all. But I mean, hunting it's a, it's a very broad spectrum, and I mean, um, you know, you can take hunting as from lads from inner city estates that go out with ferrets on a weekend, you know, um, ferreting rabbits, you know, you can take it from that all the way up to shooting grouse, you know, and it's it's all the same kind of thing. It's still the urge for people to go out and kill stuff for themselves, you know, which they do, um, you know, so it, it, it goes a long way back, and I think people will always want to do that. They always will, you know, it the things that people kill get eaten the nothing gets wasted you know so it gets eaten somewhere down the line you know and i think you know people have got to realize a lot of people are quite happy to go to a supermarket and buy the bacon for a sunday morning and think nothing of it you know but i mean a lot of that bacon is you know that's been produced in massive pig rearing units on the continent shipped over here i mean what conditions they're raised in you know, who knows? People And people don't get that. They don't understand that. But it's quite acceptable for them to eat a slice of bacon that's been raised in a pig unit with thousands of pigs in it. You know, people people need to, you know, really seriously think about it and think about what they're eating. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I would uh, guess, Jake, you'd be of a very similar opinion. I mean, I, I think this is one of the reasons my freezer is primarily filled with game. Because I know that I'm I'm not eating horse. <laughs> now I've got no objection to eating horse, but I want to know if I'm eating it. I mean, obviously I'm talking about the the scandal. I think it was maybe a year ago now, where it turned out a lot of uh, what we'd been eating that we all thought was beef was actually horse from some major supermarket chains. But the point really there is that how do you really know where your food is coming from and what uh, what it's been through to get to your plate? Now, the one thing I know from taking a bird off the hill or a deer off the hill is I've seen it there and it's got its fur on and it's got its feathers on. And I am very, very comfortable in that fact that I have killed this animal and it's now going into my freezer. The thing that I find quite staggering, and it's only because a lot of people don't think about it, is that if you were to show the, that same feathered or you know just killed animal to the vast majority of people who are quite happy to rip open their, their plastic packet on their chicken with a little you know, foam insert in the bottom, they probably couldn't eat it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've probably had the odd tussle with uh, people like that in the past. Jake, I know what you're like. <laughs> you paint a bad picture, Brian. Um, yeah, I mean, I can think of a couple of occasions just off the top of my head. Um, on one of the bushcraft courses I ran recently, there was a, a lady who uh, was asking how I got into bushcraft. So um, I don't... I don't necessarily advertise, you know, I don't offer the fact that I'm a hunter to people that go there, but if they ask, I'm, I'm happy to tell them about it. Um, and I explained that um, where, where she would probably go to the supermarket and buy packaged meat, then, you know, I would prefer to um, to go and find it myself. And th there, there are reasons why I prefer that. Now, during the college course, during um, the qualifications that you have to undertake before, you, you know, before you have a, uh, a rifle or a shotgun for starters, or for even shooting a deer, um, there are certain stringent um, things that you have to go through, and you've got to be licensed to do these things. Um, now, you, you get taught um, how to identify, uh, you know, the, the relevant signs, 
of a deer that might not be well, a deer that shouldn't enter the food chain. Um, before you even think about taking uh, any sort of shot, you're, you're assessing the deer while it's stood. So effectively, you're, you're happy as you can be that that, that is you know, the, right, the right animal um, to take and put into the food chain. And then obviously, um, once you do pull the trigger, then there's a further inspection, a very detailed inspection um, uh, that goes on um, you know, after you pull the trigger as well. Um, and I, I explained all this to, the, to this lady, and, I, you know, the deer has had a, a really good life. It's had very, very fresh food to eat. It's had complete and utter freedom. And, you know, you know that, you know, it's not being, it's not being penned in. It's not being fed on all kinds of preserved food. And, you know, then it's gone into the food chain. And it, it's very, it's surprising, actually, when it's explained to people how many people come around to your way of thinking, actually think, well, do you know what? You're right. It's had a great life. It's healthy. It's fit. And it's in the freezer, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a perfect example of what I think is primarily the problem that we have when trying to explain or defend most of the time what we do, and that is that there simply isn't the information out there for the public. Um, I think it was possibly on the last podcast that we did, um, I think it came from Nathan Little, and he was saying that you can't necessarily blame the pub- the public for having formed the opinion that they formed from what, generally speaking, is fairly biased media, whether that be on TV or in the newspapers, because you do need to provide that counter-argument. And I think as an industry, as hunters, historically, and not just in this country, but around the world, I think we've been fairly poor at making sure that our side of the message is out there. Because like you've just explained, you, you know, you took the time to explain that to somebody and they suddenly could see, well, hang on a second, that makes perfect logical sense. And my opinion has always been that if you eat any kind of meat, you cannot, um, you, you, you cannot stand there and say that you disagree with hunting. I mean, what do you think about that, Jason? Yeah, no, I agree totally. I mean... Um if you if you eat meat, I don't see how you can possibly disagree with people killing stuff to eat. How, how can you? I mean, it, it's a bit hypocritical, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But you see, I think the trouble is people have become too far removed from it, and it's too easy for them to go to a supermarket and buy things in a packet, and half of the time it doesn't even look like or resemble meat at all. You know, and that that's the problem. People are too far removed from it. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. I, w- I wasn't quite expecting our conversation to go along this line today, but that, that's brilliant. Brilliant that it has taken that route. Now, I'm just going to um, maybe go to something that's uh, happened in the in the last couple of weeks, and we'll, we'll just kind of s- see where this goes. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had the uh, um, a call for Chris Packham, the, who's the, the, the BBC presenter, to basically resign, or the BBC to remove him from his role because it was felt that he was pushing, you know, an anti-hunting agenda. I, I'm not quite sure where the, where the petition came from, but I'm sure it came from a hunter or some hunting organization. And obviously that that wasn't listened to. And then he came out on, on YouTube, I think it was last week, and said, you know, thank you very much for all the people who had supported him. I think he got about 70,000 people sign his peti- uh, petition to say, keep him in the job. But what I found... Uh, leaving everything else aside, what I found rather distasteful about his thank you was his call to all his 70,000 supporters who had signed the petition 
to join um, a, a couple of organizations. I know some made perfect sense. He was asking um, people to join the RSPB. But then he also called for people to join the League Against Cruel Sports. And for me, I, I felt that that was, that was a step too far, knowing, and it's perfectly public knowledge, you can go and um, Google some of the, the things that League Against Cruel Sports have been involved in and some of the things they've been accused of over the years, in, in particular um, an area which they ran as a, a deer park, which was nothing short of a disaster from start to finish with um, starving deer all, all around the, the periphery of, of, of that place just simply because of densities that were too high because they weren't managing the population. And it does make me question how somebody calling for um, people to support league, the, the League Against Cruel Sports can really be standing there in an organization like the BBC presenting Springwatch, which loads of people watch, and form a, an unbiased opinion. I mean, uh, Jake, uh, what, what do you think about that? Did you did you catch that um, that info when it came out from him? Yeah, I did. Um, I did, and I mean, I, I'll give credit where credit's due. Um, in the earlier days, or Chris's earlier days in TV presenting, um, I think he did a lot of good work. The really wild show springs to mind. You know, it he brought wildlife to the forefront. Um, and he educated younger people about, you know, the sort of necessity of looking after wildlife and introducing wildlife into people's living rooms. Unfortunately, since, you know, the, his sort of fame has developed and his position has developed, um, I know I'm not, I'm not going to use the word uh, abuse, but um, he's certainly in a, in a much stronger position now. Um, and a lot more people uh, are willing to listen to him because of his, his position within the BBC. Um, his word carries a lot of weight, and I just think he has to be very, very careful um, about what you know about what he says and what his actions are. Um, he, I think he was, he was described by the Guardian as well um, as Chris Packham, the hero uh, of Springwatch, um, versus Countryside Alliance, um, who are the champions of blood sports. Uh, now, for me, you know, that is a very, very one-sided statement in itself. Um, and then Chris working for the BBC, who is an independent or alleged independent company, um, who uh, clearly support um, Chris's uh, own thoughts on the matter and uh, put up with, basically, all of his, um, you know, all of his comments, which... He sails too close to the wind, really, for my liking. Mm -hmm. uh, on one hand, he says that he he doesn't disagree with some shooting. Uh, the shooting that he does disagree with, like of woodcock, grouse. Um, but you know how one person can support some shooting and uh, and actually, you know, uh, be disgusted by other kinds of shooting. It's just a little bit hypocritical um, for me. But I, I I'm not. I can't say I'm a fan of his anymore. Anymore. I've lost a lot of respect. Um, for Chris Packham over the past few years anyway. Uh, Jason, I mean, you, you, you watched the, the video as well. I mean, with particular reference to League Against Cruel Sports, I mean, how does that kind of sit with you? Obviously, I, I have to admit, sitting here, I mean, the, the three of us are fairly like-minded, although, you know, we, we do different things in life. Um, so obviously, League Against Cruel Sports is not, a, not, not an organization you're going to find me a member of. But, I mean, how, how does that sit with you, I mean, calling people to join League Against Cruel Sports? 
Yeah, it sits really badly. I mean, um, League of Grand Scroll Sports, I mean, we all know um, they disrupt, disrupt a lot of um, legal activities, whether it be shooting or um, fox hunting or whatever. Um, you know, we, we know for a fact that that's happened and a lot of the people that belong to these organisations have been prosecuted for it, you know, and they're still being prosecuted for it. So, you know, I mean, in a way, in a way, he's promoting an organisation um, you know that that are involved in illegal activities. So you know, I mean, that in itself is wrong. And you know, working for the BBC, which is supposed to be a non-biased organisation, I mean, it's 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 wrong. Mm. I mean, just to give a, a little bit of background on Chris and maybe get some of your comments on this. I'm not sure whether you are aware of this. I, I actually remember maybe a, a year ago or maybe two years ago writing uh, ghost writing something um for, for a pu- publication which was was with regard to um some new legislation that was coming out with um reference to gray squirrels and, and the trapping of gray squirrels i, I imagine you, are you part of that program jason on on milden or no we don't have any gray squirrels you don't have any no, no. actually no. we very nearly ran over a red squirrel running out we had to slam on brakes to miss it so I, i've seen quite a lot at Glenis, which is always great to see but what is interesting with regard to Chris Pack, I mean, this is widely available. You can Google it in two seconds um, if you take the time to, is that he is very much of the opinion that we should let gray squirrels wipe out our red population. And that is almost um, word for word what he's saying. He, he he's basically um, says here, you know, wave goodbye to the red squirrels. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I, I find that quite... I don't know. I, I find that very strange from somebody who's supposed to be a conservationist and who is supposed to, you know, protect or be for processes that are in the best interest of our, our native species. And to suggest that we should simply allow um, that we should simply allow uh, an alien species is what gray squirrels are to wipe out our, our native reds and that there's nothing we can do about it. I, I I don't know. I, I that that doesn't sit comfortably with me, especially because part of his his argument of that is that we shouldn't save one species by killing another. I mean, um, Jake, were you aware were, were you aware of that in in passing in, in previous years? His comments on gray squirrels. Not directly. I'm I'm aware of his his thoughts about it, but I hadn't. Uh, you know, that's that's a comment that I've missed, and that's certainly not one that sits very well with me. Um, I mean, red squirrels are an indigenous species here. Um, greys are brought here. In fact, um, they're doing really good work on Anglesey at the minute. They, they've virtually declared Anglesey a um, grey squirrel-free zone. And even the reds have started coming across the Menai Bridge um, into the mainland, which is great news. Um, and uh, for me, you know, that work should continue. Um, you know, reds should be abundant here. Uh- I mean, Jason, do, should we just let the, the greys come up the glens and, and wipe out the reds? Does it matter if there's not a single red left in, in the British Isles? Yeah, it matters to me a lot, and I think it would matter to the vast majority of the people in Britain, I should imagine. I've, that's a new one on me, and I didn't even know he'd quoted that at all. I mean, I don't understand his thinking of it. I mean, the science behind it or whatever, I don't know. Um, but, no, that's uh, that's a strange one, and definitely not, no. Um, like I said, I mean, the red squirrels are fantastic things. And there's no way I'd like to see them wiped out by greys. Definitely not. Just uh, very briefly, just just give me an idea. What you don't, we don't, you don't have any in Glenesk. But what processes do? I mean, you don't have to go too far to to find grey squirrels. What processes are ongoing in Angus, if you like, 
to 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 counter the the gray squirrel invasion yeah i mean once you get gray squirrels they're really really difficult to remove um you know they're an aggressive species um like we all know i mean the um they they outnumber and you know they outcompete the red squirrels um you know, also diseases that they spread. Um, but like I say, once you get them in, it's very, very difficult to remove them. I mean, you can use all, you know, various methods, trapping, shooting, you know, as much as you like, but really, really difficult to eradicate. Uh, now, Mr. Bushcroft, have you ever eaten a gray squirrel? Yes, I have. And what did you, <laughs> I have as well, actually. What did you think? Um, they're very, very fiddly to deal with, to be honest. That was one of my first thoughts. Um, but I, I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, it's they're, they're a very very clean meat. Um, they eat very clean foods. Um, there's very little contamination in, in what they eat. So uh, again, I'm all for uh, greys in the food chain. Well, well <laughs> greys in the food chain. I like that. Maybe we should start a campaign. <laughs> uh, well, I ate mine back in my university days, so you know things were a bit tight. That's going to be my excuse. Um, just as a, a final note on uh, on on Mr. Packham, this is just a, a totally out there out there point and i'm interested to see what both of yours take is going to be on this is, is another thing that he is quite famous for saying and i don't know i'm almost siding siding with him on this is that he he basically suggested i, I think it was back in the two, early 2000s that we should let the last giant panda die out and we should use the funding because a vast amount of funding goes into to protecting a species that doesn't want to breed and only eats one type of bamboo and we should use that funding to protect other species that maybe have a chance of pr uh, proliferation. Uh, and, uh, you know, species, I suppose, like the rhino, which need a lot of money spent on them right now to protect them from poaching. I mean, I don't know, Jason, uh, should we let the, the panda die out? Or should we, should we auction off pandas? Or, you know, what should we do? <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, why should you let any species die out? And, you know, as a hunter myself, you know, you don't want to see the last of any species disappear. You know, you don't. And... Um, you know the way you know you talked about earlier the management you know, the management of these estates for shooting you know I mean it benefits so many so many different animals you know that we want to see still living you know everything and how I can say you know oh just let the species die out I will never know I mean uh, that's another strange one from him as well mm -hmm. I mean I have thought I actually thought about this long and hard when I first heard about it and I I can kind of see the point and I know most people will not agree with this, but I can kind of see the point if there is so much money being spent, and I, I don't have the numbers, but if there is, you know, the, but I know that it is a colossal amount of money being spent on, on saving this one species. Is that really fair? Is that really fair on, on, on other species that are not big and fluffy and cuddly and everybody can kind of, you know, go and see in a zoo? I mean, a great example that, that I heard of was um, there was a subspecies of rock rabbit, which is a type, uh, type of rabbit that you find in Africa. And this subspecies was found somewhere up in Namibia. And it, it's under threat of becoming extinct. Um, it's eaten quite a lot by the native tribes up there. And it's, it's on the brink now. It's almost at the point of no return. But have you, Jason, have you heard about this little rock rabbit that's about to become extinct? No, I've no? never heard no. of it. Um, Jake, have you heard about this little rock rabbit? No, I have not. No, okay, well, of course you haven't because... Um, of course you haven't because people don't or can't relate to it like they can relate to, to a panda bear and I can from that point of view I can kind of see is it fair to spend all this money just because 
people can relate to this one species because it's there and, and you know it's majestic to look at whereas we shouldn't spend equal amount of time and effort and funding on these little species that nobody even knows about so i don't know maybe i can kind of see his point on that one but but equally i'm i don't want to see species wiped off the, the the face of the earth and not put any effort into saving them but maybe it is the case that there should be a fairer allocation of funding maybe that's more the point jake Right, if I can just detract you from the funding side of things, first of all, um, the the one thing that's, I mean, I, I certainly don't have an, an opinion at the minute um, because I haven't really, I don't have enough information on it. But one thing does strike me is that Chris Packham um, is obviously in one sense wanting nature to take its course and not to be involved where reds and grey, grey squirrels um, uh, are involved. Um, but when it comes to pandas, uh, he seems to take the higher power when it suits him. You know, has he has he been elevated to some sort of higher power when it comes to certain species, but not others? Is he is he willing to make a decision on you know let the panda die, but I'm not getting involved in the squirrels? There's got to be some consistency, really. Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, that's this is probably probably a, a debate that would run and run. But I thought I'd just chuck the panda in there because it's an interesting one, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people with a lot of opinions on that. But I'm uh, yeah, I think. Allocation of funding, yeah, I don't want to see the pandas die out. Um, but it, it does raise the point that people care about things that they feel they can kind of relate to. And uh, we, we talked about this in the last podcast, but you know, everyone was up in arms about Cecil the Lion because people can relate to a lion that you know everybody's um, seen the Lion King, but nobody cares about some little obscure grasshopper somewhere in the Amazon that's about to become extinct. But... I mean, that could run and run. I think we'll, we'll pick that up with uh, some other people at, at another time. Just to um, take this on, this is all, all very serious now, um, going from, from Chris Packham on to the, the next very topical um, topical aspect, which is uh, the recent appointment, uh, appointment of the shadow... Um, let me get this right now. It is the... the uh, the, the Shadow Minister for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, which is uh, Kerry McCarthy, uh, MP for, for Bristol East. Now, uh, it, it, it's wi uh, widely been publicized in, in the last two weeks that uh, she is a, a vegan, which is fine. Uh, but she's also the vice president of League Against Cruel Sports, which we've already covered um, to some extent tonight. It seems to me a really odd appointment, and uh, I just have a quote here which um, I've pulled from a, a reputable um, newspaper from, from the Telegraph here, and uh, you probably saw this in the papers this week, it's uh, just to pull a, a small part of her quote, she says, I really believe that meat should be um, treated the same as tobacco, and basically what she was saying with that was that we should discourage people from eating meat. Um, Jason, I mean, w the appointment... Her thoughts, her membership, her stance. I mean, where does that where does that sit in terms of, you know, where we are in the UK as people, as as communities and farming? Yeah, just read me um, read me the name. What's what's her appointment title again? Um, Shadow Minister for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Well, there you go. I mean, that explains it all. How on earth can you have someone um, with that mindset um, dealing with rural affairs, you know, and those issues? I mean, I just I don't know, I just cannot work that one out. I mean, um, what they're thinking by appointing a... As that, I mean, I, you can imagine farmers rolling about on the backs laughing at that appointment, you know. 
that's not that's not going to do the Labour Party any good at all, is it? By appointing, you know, someone like that. And like I say, I just I find it really difficult to understand, you know, where they're coming from with that one. And Jake, I mean, I think we're probably all going to be on the same page here. But what's your take from it? I'm just wondering whether Jeremy Corbyn's done his homework. Um, I mean, obviously, he's new into office. Um, you know, has he looked at the background and thought, that's a good idea? If he has, then that's very, very worrying. Um, you know, it just how much faith do you put into uh, a leader who appoints somebody who's against farming? Um, I watched a 15-minute debate um, by Miss McCarthy today. Um, and it was it was almost laughable, to be quite honest. It was 15 minutes. In, in, instead of, you know, her constituents voted her, uh, her Bristol constituents voted her in as their representative, and instead of representing them in the House of Cor uh, Commons, her only chance to speak was uh, a speech uh, about how everybody should become vegan. Now, how she, she can't even represent her own constituents, let alone the people who she's now been appointed um, to represent, who, whose views she doesn't agree with, uh, which is farming and uh, rural, rural affairs. So, you know, she hasn't done a job to begin with, so I'm going to presume that she's not going to be able to do the job she's been appointed to do now. No, that, that's interesting. My, my brother and I, we've been up the Glen all day, so I'm, we, we must have missed that. We've, we've not had any phone reception or certainly seen any news today. So, But, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, it, it doesn't really surprise me. And I, I think that, you know, farming is such a such a backbone for so many rural commu uh, communities that we are all part of. I think any move to uh, damage that in any way, and that's only really the only way that I, I can describe her, her points of view because I don't see how what she has come across with right now can be seen as any other way than damaging um, to those, those farming communities. And... I mean, being vice president of the uh, League Against Cruel Sports, I can only imagine what the moves would be that she would like to push in terms of, uh, you know, what the activities that um, the three of us um, enjoy and are, are part of as part of our livelihoods. I mean, you know, no, I, I wouldn't even want to bring up the, the question of hunting and, uh, you know, grouse shooting and stalking. Uh, I, can, I can imagine what, what those answers would be. And finally, we come to our last topic of the night. I know uh, time is ticking on a little bit. The issue of hunting magazines being put on the top shelf. Now, I remember this This came up in discussion about two years ago. Um, it was part of a campaign by Animal Aid, and there was actually a picture of me uh, with, um, of all things, a kudu cow that I'd shot in Africa a few years back um, in this Animal Aid brochure that was trying to convince uh, government and uh, to change regulation to make sure that hunting magazines were on the top shelf. I mean, Jake, what is what is your take on this? I mean, what possible reason could there be for it? Is there a justification to put hunting magazines uh, and on the top shelf? And what would be the, the, the damage of that, I mean, and consequences? Um, personally, I don't think there would be any damage or consequence um, about having you know, field sports um, or country pursuit magazines or whatever you want to call them, um, shooting magazines in supermarkets. My uh, my preferred supermarket has actually stopped stocking any type of, um, of shooting magazine now. Uh, they're quite happy to stock angling magazines. Um, and I haven't yet raised it with them, but I actually plan to. Um, it's I, I think it's a question of education. You know, um, I think the, the uh, gun law comes into it a lot. Um, but obviously, 
Obviously, the use of firearms with non-licensed people far, far outweighs the, um, you know, the uh, use of uh, any firearms with malice uh, for licensed users. Um, but I think it's just a matter of education um, and educating people that, you know, removing these hunting magazines or shooting magazines from the shelf is not going to make a scrap of difference. Um, you know, if if one is seen uh, or they're, if they're trying to be reintroduced, it's going to have a much bigger impact because they haven't been seen for a while. You know, it needs to be in the public eye and there needs to be more education about it and they need to leave. You know, it, it's got to be a blanket ban, um, which you won't be able to do. It's got to be, you know, if you're going to take shooting magazines off, take angling magazines off, you know, and, and that that's just going to have a big knock-on effect and then you won't be able to read anything, you won't be able to look at anything, you won't be able to look anything up on the internet. Um, but it, it's getting silly. You're saying, where, where do you draw the line? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Jason, did you did you hear about that story when it came out a couple of years ago? I did. Yeah, I heard about it, and uh, you know, I mean, I think pretty much the same. You know, why should it? People need to know these things. You know, everybody's got freedom of choice to read what they like. You know, and it's not it's not offensive. You know, and it it's not in people's faces. It's you know, it's it's your choice if you want to buy one of those magazines and read it. Then that's fine. You know, I mean, the covers to these things don't have graphic images on them, you know, so I don't see the problem at all. And what about, uh, I mean, an age limit was, was the other thing that was brought up recently. Yeah, I mean, whether there is an age limit or not, why should there be an age limit on it? You know, I mean, it doesn't make any difference. Okay, there are pictures of guns and knives in there, but there are already age limits for buying and possessing all those kinds of things anyway. So that wouldn't make any difference, I don't think, anyway. Um, just kind of following on from this, and I, I just want to touch on this before we, we wrap up tonight, talking about education and making sure that the, the public are informed more accurately from your side of view, from, from our point of view of what's going on in the countryside. Jason, you've been involved in a, a very, very active campaign as part of the, the Angus Glen's Merlin Group. Can you just, uh, you know, just briefly give a rundown of what you're doing and why you're doing it and the success that you've had so far? Yeah, um, I mean, the Angus Glen's Merlin Group is just one group of a national, you know, the, the national groups now, just one part of the country. Um, the Angus Glen's Merlin Group um, is designed to educate people and let people out there know exactly what we are doing, um, you know, and... The amount of time and effort that um, not just gamekeepers but gamekeepers' families put into, you know, the job we do, um, you know, and the the communities that are involved within shooting estates, you know, I mean, I, 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 people don't realise the um, the size of the thing, you know, they don't realise how um, shooting estates affect the the local communities, um, you know, from schools you know, to butchers, to garages, you know. So we, we're trying to get this message across to people um, through the Angus Glen's Moreland Group. Um, I mean, we've had a lot of success with the group so far. Um, uh, we have down in Edinburgh, was it last Tuesday, um, uh, we showed um, a film to the media and the Scottish government, the w which we made, um, you know, the film explaining sort of a year in the life of the gamekeeper you know and the families and everything that's involved in it so yeah getting getting a good lot of success with it jake have you have you caught this uh this campaign have you you seen bits and pieces on social media and well to be honest um i've caught just a few bits and pieces of it i'm not completely versed in it um just with having a lot of uh, 
other other commitments over here at the minute. But um, yeah, I'm I'm aware of some aspects of it. And and in terms of the effort to get the message out there, obviously it's a it's an important thing to do. Do you think that this is almost is it a little bit too late, uh, too little, too late, or? You know, what's your kind of view? I mean, I think it's it's a it's a marvelous campaign, and I'm gl- really pleased to see it being run. It's so good that this kind of information is now freely available, and the point of view from from the the keepers and and the view out of the glens and all the local communities and the local businesses that are involved is out there. But a little part of me feels like it should have been done a little while ago because it's a shame that this information hasn't been available. I think the giant panda would have a better uh, answer on that than I would. But um, absolutely right. You know, um, again, I, I keep coming back to education, but having completed um, the gamekeeper's course, you know, fairly recently, you know, three or four years ago, um, it gets drummed into you. You know, we go out visiting communities and you can see the benefit in those communities in the shops and the butchers, like Jason says. Um, and it, it's, you know, it, it's, the, it's the farm workers, it's the, it's the gamekeepers, it's the knock-on effects, it's the game dealers. It's the butchers. It's the post office. You know, it's it's the um, the economy that, uh, that that surrounds the whole group. You know, you're getting people paying money to come uh, to come in. You know, they're plowing money into the economy. They're staying in local accommodation, um, and it's a massive thing. So no, it's not too little, too late. I think we need to do the right thing. And we need to do it now. I think that is a perfect way to finish up this podcast. Thank you very much, um, gents, for joining us this evening. I know it's uh, it's been a late one, but I, I really appreciate you both coming on. And uh, thank you very much for your input and, and comments. I think it's been a good chat tonight. No, oh, thank you, Byron. Thank you. Thanks. Speak to you again soon. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. It has been a very interesting show. Don't forget this uh, podcast is now available on iTunes to download. It will now be available once every two weeks and it will be on other platforms such as YouTube and SoundCloud. Now, uh, I don't know about everyone else, but I will be watching uh, the rugby this weekend, so I wish Scotland uh, a very, very good game against South Africa. Um, I will actually be there in person. So uh, good luck to Scotland. And uh, what do you think, Byron? Who's going to win? Well, I have to side with Scotland, don't I? I really, really hope that uh, they, they don't disappoint, but they've been playing well so far. Thank you very much, uh, everyone, uh, for listening from me. Um, As we said at the start, this podcast has kindly been brought to you by the the Scottish Association for Country Sports, uh, without whom we wouldn't be able to bring you this podcast. So thank you very much to them for supporting us. Until next time, stay safe.